My name's Jess Miles and welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. So it's only humans and two species of whale who go through the menopause. But unlike whales, we humans are likely to be having to experience this in the context of work. There has been a growing interest in talking about menopause over the last decade, but the impact is still rarely discussed in management and organisation studies, despite having profound implications in this area. Menopausal symptoms include loss of memory, sleepless nights, depression, anxiety, insomnia and lack of focus, yet people are expected to carry on as if nothing is happening. A Channel 4 survey in 2021 revealed that half of the people asked said menopause affected their ability to do their job and one in 10 quit their job because of the menopause. None of this is helped by tokenistic, piecemeal and unsatisfactory government responses. Today, I am speaking to Vanessa Beck, Professor in Employment Studies at the University of Bristol, and Joe Brewis, Professor of People and Organisations at the Open University. Vanessa and Joe wrote a report on menopause transitions for the Government Equalities Office in 2017, and have gone on to edit Menopause Transitions in the Workplace, which is one of the books in the Bristol University Press Rethinking Work, Aging and Retirement series. Welcome, Vanessa and Joe. Hi. Hi. Thank Hi. you. Thank you for speaking to me. Um, before we start, it's really important to say that when we use the terms woman, women, she, her, and female in this podcast, these are just placeholders. Anyone who has ovaries will experience the menopause. It's not just cis women. So I outlined some of the symptoms of menopause in the introduction, of which there are many. But please, can we start by defining what you mean by menopause transitions and I was also interested in why you use the phrase menopause transitions instead of just saying menopause. Yeah um, it's a really good place to start because um, even the what we might assume to be basics are not necessarily clear. By definition we can only really know about um, menopause in retrospect so the term menopause the instance of the menopause happens 12 months after somebody's had their last period. And so we don't necessarily know, you might then have another period and, and that's quite difficult to establish. So what this means is that lots of women don't actually know where they are in relation to menopause, whether they're pre-menopausal, post-menopausal, or right smack bang in the middle of it. Um, and that might change depending on you know whether your period then comes back or not. See, I didn't even know that, that it's 12 months since... After your last period, that's when the menopause officially starts? That is the instance of the menopause. So the, the, menop the oh, menopause oh, is it? itself is that that moment 12 months after your last period. Yeah. Um, and then you have phases before and after. And okay. it's quite confusing often as to where you are. Um, it's not helped by the fact that it's difficult to differentiate what symptoms might be menopause and what symptoms might be aging. Mm -hmm. um, so there's lots of things where there's a little bit of overlap and it's and sometimes difficult to tell. And it also doesn't help that each individual's um, symptoms can vary over time and in the combination of symptoms that they might experience. So for many women, it is really quite confusing. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, we've been using the term transitions to cover this entire phase so that you don't have to be specific in terms of which stage of menopause an individual might be in or an experience might happen in it happens within that transition overall and um, that transition is often uh, as we I think make clear in the book quite problematic for, for many people yeah thanks Vanessa that's a really helpful way of looking at it so how does 
um, the menopause, menopause transition impact work, and how do women compensate? In one of the chapters in the book, um, it talks about the two-way relationship between menopause and work. Joe, do you want to speak a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jessica. Um, yes. So we talk about what we often call the vicious circle of the relationship between symptoms and work. So there's now very good evidence that a whole variety of symptoms can make work a very difficult place to be. Not for everybody. It's really important to point out that some people literally do just breeze through menopause and barely notice anything. Mm-hmm. Whereas right at the other end of the scale, there are people whose lives are fundamentally and seriously disrupted. But we ran a survey, which we talk about in some of the chapters in the book, in conjunction with colleagues and TUC education in the summer of 2018. And what we did as part of the survey was ask people who identified themselves as either perimenopausal, in other words, experiencing symptoms, menopausal or postmenopausal, to identify what their most problematic symptoms were in the context of work. So what we came up with there were fatigue scored the most highly, There were other symptoms like um, hot flushes, inability to concentrate, um, lack of sleep and so on. So you can I think it's quite easy to imagine how it feels at work if you're exhausted because you're fatigued due to menopause or because you've had a terrible night's sleep because of night sweats or the often very socially embarrassing experience of having a hot flush, Mm. which not only is physically uncomfortable, but some women have told us that they literally end up dripping with sweat and their faces are you know, incredibly red and it's very visible to other people. So there's a kind of social embarrassment and a, a physical experience that often goes along with menopause symptoms at work. But if you flip the switch, work can also make symptoms worse. And again, hot flushes is, is probably the, the, um, the best example here. So if you think about um, a surgeon, for example, in a very, very bright and very warm environment operating theatre, and they're wearing scrubs and a, you know those funny hats that surgeons wear, mm-hmm. I can't think of the proper term for them, they'll have gloves on and so on, and will be wearing something covering their face. I mean, imagine having a hot flush in that experience it, the, mm. the whole thing will just exacerbate that experience because you're already in this incredibly warm environment wearing very warm clothes the same would be true of anybody who has to wear any form of protective personal equipment so that could also include um, police officers wearing stab vests if you work in very hot or poorly ventilated workplace environments mm. that can increase the experience of hot flushes and i'm also mindful of somebody that we interviewed who again is is quoted in one of the chapters in the book where she talks about even low level stress at work triggering hot flushes so when something comes in she talks about it doesn't have to be particularly significant or particularly challenging it's just if it's something that requires her immediate attention her internal thermometer mm. just shoots up and she has to put a fan on and she says you know it's it's like a yo-yo all day fan off fan on fan off mm. fan on and that's just one example of how symptoms can make work more difficult but work can also exacerbate symptoms and i suppose there's a lot of like anxiety and anticipation around having these symptoms as well isn't it and when they're going to come and worrying about Absolutely. How, how you'll deal with it and if yeah. anxiety is also a symptom of the menopause which I only realized a couple of years ago that that thing the psychological symptoms I think are also nothing like as well recognized as the physical symptoms yeah. um, so things like anxiety forgetfulness not being able to concentrate irritability mood swings loss of confidence all of these things are very common Mm. in menopause but as as Vanessa pointed out very often it can be difficult to disentangle what's going on mm. but 
for example, if somebody presents at their GP and says, I'm feeling very anxious and very depressed, that the likelihood is that they will be prescribed antidepressants when right. actually what they might need is HRT mm-hmm. or another form of lifestyle change, which wouldn't be treating the symptoms, but would be treating the cause. But yes, I think that sort of anticipatory time of thinking, oh my goodness, how, how can I withstand or forestall or prevent these sorts of things happening at work is very challenging for women. And, and they often have to put in what a is called SEER calls the third shift. So that's work, domestic work. And we know that women shoulder most of the burden for that in the home. But you've also got that third shift of thinking, well, if I have a hot flush tomorrow, I need to take in a change of clothes. I need to take deodorant in or um, I need to make sure that I'm by a window or I need to make sure that I'm near a door so I can exit quickly. And all of that takes its toll as well, because that's just an extra burden on top of what you're already experiencing. And that's the compensating bit, isn't it? And the it's just more emotional labor, isn't it? When I was reading the book, I was thinking about how I didn't I didn't really know how to phrase this question, but I think it feels like there's a danger of seeing women as incapable and declining during the menopause transition, even as we're trying to do the right thing and support them. So how do I got a bit stuck on how do we discuss the menopause and its implications? without kind of inadvertently writing women off. Vanessa, could you talk about that? I hope that question's clear. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll try and address that. I think it, it gets to a really important dilemma in, in relation to menopause in that on the one hand, we're trying to normalise talking about menopause and the process of going through menopause, that it's just part of everyday life for uh, more than half of the population at, at some point in their life. So that normalisation, um, you know, whether that's talking about it or providing support to those individuals is really important. But that normalisation can entail a, a danger, I guess, in that individuals who are going through that process might feel that they're not being paid enough attention because it's it's become normal. So you, you're not focusing sufficiently on. So, for example, there's also a discussion around should we talk specifically around women as opposed to everybody who goes through the process yeah. uh, some women feel that they're not you know this is something that's for them and they should be focused on we're very clear that this is it's important to talk about everybody who go mm. who can go through through menopause but that that kind of um nuance of where is the attention where is the focus is part of that normalization process and then the other kind of flip side to that is if we focus policy and practice specifically on individuals who um, are going through a menopause transition and and who express and disclose that situation, we might be missing individuals who don't want to disclose. And and our research has shown that there's quite a lot of women who don't want to disclose because either they think it's a very private issue or they are in fear of the negative connotations that are associated in terms of aging and um, that sense of as you say being written off mm. and um, especially in the workplace that is that is a danger that um, managers might feel that oh you know she's she's having hot flushes she's struggling to focus we can't ask her to do you know her job or, or do more and we'll overlook her for that promotion or whatever might might be associated with that mm. so 
there are those kind of, they're not necessarily conflicting, but they are kind of pulling in slightly different directions. Uh, I think we are clear in the book and, and in our work in general that menopause is, is not an illness, but it can be debilitating for some because it can be long term and it can impact on your day to day functioning. And that's the definition of a disability. So yeah. th- those kind of debilitating phases in life. So in many ways, I think we we need to balance paying attention to those who have a really terrible time of it and there are as I think we we exemplify in, in the book and in, in quite a few of the chapters you know, there's lots of women who who have really really bad periods in their life and who go through really dark dark patches and mm. um, but also looking at some of the potential benefits so you know not having to um uh pay attention or, or kind of have that worry of of uh, becoming pregnant, um, worrying about contraception, not having periods anymore, which for some women are, are really kind of painful and again, debilitating periods mm-hmm. in, in their life. And so that kind of focus on the positive, I think, is really important as well. And there's been some really interesting work that's come out recently. There's a There was a paper this year that came out um, in Gender Work and Organisation by Quintal et al. Um, they draw on Margaret Mead's idea of zest and and can talk about menopause zest as something that um, is a new phase in women's life that you can you know create this new um, vigor around life and and have a start a new phase in your life and 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 have a very positive outlook on it. So I think there is gradually coming a, a new perspective on menopause that includes that positive side as well. But we need to balance the two very carefully. Yeah, it's that balance, isn't it, that's so important. And I suppose it does affect all different kinds of people, doesn't it? And like thinking of like younger people going through menopause as well, to not have that solely negative view on it is really, really important. Absolutely. I think I think, you know, having something ahead of you that you that is described as only negative is really you know frightening and and you'd never want to engage with it you just put it off so actually talking about it in a in a balanced way is important Mm. so that younger individuals also engage with it and and don't feel it's something that that they absolutely have to fear and you know yeah yeah. and probably for women talking amongst themselves or people talking amongst themselves as well it would be very easy to spiral down into the more negative conversations and yeah, maybe I'm being optimistic, but I do feel like there must be, it's a life shift, isn't it? And there's quite often important things that happen there as well. Yeah. So this is obviously an important area for employees, but um, it's estimated that only 30% of employers provide support relating to the menopause at the moment. So how do we need to rethink the way we manage people in relation to menopause transitions, Joe? Yeah, great question. Um I actually was doing a presentation about menopause yesterday and a good colleague and and friend of ours, Deborah Garlick, from Hempic Menopause in the Workplace, suggested that actually the latest statistics indicate that half of employers in the UK are now doing something about menopause. And that's literally hot off the presses. Okay. So I was really pleased to hear that. please, Please send me the source because I haven't seen that report yet. But I, I think it's it's important to point out, first of all, that the UK has made enormous strides in this area over the last, let's say, seven or eight years, certainly since we started doing this work in early 2016. And it's very, very unusual for me to be proud of this country, because most of the time I think we get things badly wrong. Don't get me talking about the current government, for example. 
But in that particular space, and it's nothing to do with the government, as you rightly pointed out earlier, Jessica, but employers really have stepped up to the plate. And there's a lot of absolutely brilliant work going on in terms of supporting folk who were struggling with their symptoms at work. But going back to Vanessa's really important point earlier on about the menopause journey, sorry, hate the J word, being unique to everyone who goes through it. This then leads us to advocate for what we've sometimes called a cafeteria approach. And what we mean by that is that if you don't suffer hot flushes, then having a lightweight uniform or lightweight workwear isn't going to make much difference for you. It may be that actually what you're really suffering from is menopause-related insomnia. So that requires a different kind of tactic. And it's really just about having a range of different things that employees can draw on to suit their individual needs. And that could include flexible work. It could include better ventilated workspaces. It could include decent toilets and, and preferably showers, which are equipped with free sanitary products. It could include the ability to get up from your desk and, and walk around, go outside perhaps, go into a, a rest area just to take five to kind of resettle. It could include your workload shifting around in terms of when you're particularly symptomatic, not having to do work that requires a lot of detail and concentration, and so on and so on and so on. But the really important thing is that managers should always, when somebody has disclosed that they're struggling with their symptoms at work, they should ask them, what can I do to support you? So what would work for you in terms mm -hmm. of you managing your symptoms or as helping you to manage your symptoms? And it shouldn't be assumed that there's a one size fits all yeah. process here. Yeah, that's the same with so many things, isn't it? Um, but unfortunately, I guess we do kind of tend to go down that road sometimes. Um, and how can addressing the needs of people experiencing menopause actually improve working conditions overall? Pretty much everything that Joe has just said kind of applies to most it does, people. We, doesn't we it? all yeah. have good and bad days and we all have, you know, issues whether physically or mentally that we sometimes struggle with so that kind of question you know what would work for you is is a fantastic way to start thinking about good workplace relations overall you know how can we make the workplace a positive place to be in rather than something where we constantly feel under pressure or or observed or pressurized into doing things that we don't want to do or in the way that in a way that we don't want to do them so a lot of this i guess depends on the focus in how you apply menopause guidelines or menopause strategies or whatever um, policies whatever you might want to use so whether they are available only to, although that is obviously the main focus on on to, to those who are experiencing menopause transition or whether they and as I mentioned earlier that then entails the danger that they don't they're not available to individuals who don't want to disclose their menopause situation mm. um, or whether you open it up to all employees so for example um, we know of organizations who've um, introduced menopause support via the health and well-being policies at work, which then opens it up to everybody in terms of the kind of things that might be beneficial. So the things that Joe mentioned um, just now are all kind of things that we that everybody benefits on uh, from. So you know good facilities, drinking water, temperature control, the ability to to stand up and walk around. Um, they're, they're healthy kind of parts of of a day-to-day -day working life and that that idea of you know being flexible in your working hours or or in the location of where you work I mean if COVID has taught us anything it's it's shown that a lot of work can be done at home in different types of, of structures in different kind of working hours 
um, and that that flexibility doesn't destroy the economy. So yeah. um, you know, we, 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 we really have got experiences now that, that show that we can do work very differently to the benefit of, of everybody. Mm, absolutely. A big message in the book is really a call to researchers to undertake scholarship in new spaces in this area. And you make it clear that lots and lots of progress has been made in the research. But you also say that practice is moving ahead of research and that evidence base needs building. So what areas have been examined so far and what are the key areas that need investigating next in terms of research, Joe? Yeah, thanks, Jessica. So when we published the government report, which feels like such a long time ago now, um, (laughs) we identified there in the final chapter seven, eight, nine, ten areas which really needed more research. One of them, for example, was looking at experiences over time at work and not taking a snapshot um, approach. So what researchers call a longitudinal type of study. There are studies now, including one that's uh, reported in the book, which which address that to some extent. We have a much better picture now of how symptoms can affect work and how work can affect symptoms. We've also got some really groundbreaking work um, that I think was done at UCL, and this is based on a longitudinal data set called the National Childhood Development Study. And what the researchers there have been able to do is extrapolate from that data set and suggest, for example, that if you have only one severe symptom, one that really affects you at age 50, by the time you reach 55, you're 43% more likely than someone who doesn't have a serious symptom to have left work altogether. You're 23% more likely to have reduced your hours. Now, these studies, and there's, there's more to them, of course, these studies were groundbreaking for us because for the first time we could say, look, Here is robust academic evidence that people do leave work. Now, it's not a causal relationship because surveys could never show a causal relationship. So we can't say for certain that bad menopause symptoms equals you quitting your job. But I don't think it takes um, any rocket science to suggest that there's almost certainly a very strong correlation there. There's lots of other areas where the research has moved on, um, and, and one in particular, again, which which we feature quite heavily in the book, is empirical research, so data-based research from the UK, mm-hmm. which was very few and far between when we were reviewing literature for the report. And there's a whole host of other places where, where the gaps are being filled, but it's still a very nascent area right. of research, and particularly in Vanessa and my, I think that's the right construction, in our area of management and organisation studies, there's only a handful of people doing this work and we all know each other <laughs> we yeah. all collaborate with each other it's um yeah it's a, it's a, it's a great little community but it would be even better if it was if it was a larger community and there is so much work left to be done i mean we were talking weren't we before the recording started yeah. about particular areas that where we literally don't know anything so while there might be wider literature so clinical or social science literature that that tackles these areas we haven't got evidence as to how they play out at work. So, for example, we don't know anything about women who go through either premature menopause, so that's before the age of 40, or early menopause between the ages of um, 40 and 44. We don't know anything about how they tackle the workplace, how they navigate the workplace. There's nothing at all. Nothing at all. Wow. We don't know anything about women with any form of disability, 
how their right. workplace experience might be affected. We don't know anything about people with different gender identities, how the workplace affects them or how they experience yeah. the workplace when they're going through the menopause. We don't know anything about um, racial or cultural or ethnic differences and how might that might affect workplace experience. I mean, we do know from some wonderful work that's been done in, in the US, it's called a SWAN, Study for Women's Health Across the Nation, mm-hmm. longitudinal survey, which, which suggests very strongly that people of differing ethnic heritages report different kinds of symptoms. Oh, and that would be so interesting yeah. to explore at work, but we, we just don't have that data yet. We also don't know really anything. There's one piece of research that I can think of of how the experience of what we usually call cliff edge menopause is navigated at work. And and that's the menopause that isn't natural. It's medical or surgically induced. So for example, if you have an oophorectomy where your ovaries are removed, um, or if you're taking a drug like tamoxifen, which is often used to treat breast cancer, both of those experiences will literally tip you into menopause overnight, whether you're at that age in inverted commas or not. I could go on because it's a hobby horse of ours, but there is so much still left to play for out there um, and so much that scholars can really get their teeth into. And I I think what's what's wonderful about doing this kind of work is that it really is an ivory tower, you know, where we all sit sit around stroking our beards and saying wise (laughs) things to each other. This is stuff that that we have seen. Well, we do that. Um, (laughs) This is something that Vanessa and I and our friends and collaborators have have had the real joy and excitement of experiencing that the stuff that we're doing does seem to be informing positive social change. So there's a massive impact to be had from from work like this. And and that's another very good reason for getting on board. So come and join us, gender researchers. (laughs) And what about for those of us who aren't gender researchers? Um, so with these podcasts, we kind of like to give people something to think about, something to take away, maybe something to do. Um, Joe, you were talking earlier about um, <clears throat> progress that has been made in a lot of workplaces. 50% of workplaces are providing support in some way now. But what can we do if we feel that menopause isn't on the agenda in our workplaces? And I wondered if there was any organisations or resources you could point us to if we're interested in finding out more. Vanessa? Yeah, um, it sounds really simple, but uh, it's probably incredibly difficult. And that's basically talk about it um, yeah. and be brave, be brave yeah. to talk about it. I mean, um, Joe and, and um, me and and our kind of little, the little kind of bubble that we're in, in terms of people who work in this field, we talk about menopause all the time and it becomes really you know, normal and and I, you know, bang on about it all the time. And every time I mention it, everybody around me rolls their eyes and goes, <laughs> oh, she's going off on one again. But um, it, it is, um, it can be really difficult if it's uh, an environment in which menopause is not talked about, especially if it's maybe male dominated, although men often are very keen to become involved in the conversation. But there are certain workplace culture where cultures where it's difficult to bring up subject matters that are perhaps alien to those to those cultures. But trying to bring it up, asking questions mm. um, of of others in terms of you know what what's going on, what's what what would help you in this situation, and that doesn't necessarily mean that um, individuals are, are, are kind of that you're assuming that they are 
menopausal or going through menopause transition it, it mm. could be for many reasons that they need somebody to talk to or or a bit of support but that kind of idea of talking about it and asking questions of each other I think it goes back to that conversation we had about how can um, addressing menopause help a workplace as a whole if we actually support each other in a workplace in general yeah that will that will help and that might then enable um a culture to develop where it becomes much easier to talk about menopause and and anything else that might be on the taboo side. I mean, mental health, for example, is mm. is, is a very similar kind of thing that is that is difficult to talk about, but actually really important to talk about. So, creating relationships in a, in a workplace where you can bring up difficult conversations. It's a bit like a you know getting the stones rolling and and creating yeah. a bit of an avalanche around it. And um, I suppose if someone feels confident enough and open and secure enough to be like open about their own experiences of menopause and for younger colleagues that that changes the culture and sets a tone when maybe like, I don't know, you'll see a shift over time where it just becomes more normalised to talk about it. Joe, What we've seen time and time and time again is that real change in organisations, not always, but very often is bottom up. Yeah. So it'll be the result of frequently actually just one woman or maybe a small group of women feeling that, you know, they're really struggling at work and then having the, the you know, the straightforward guts, if you like, to, to push this further up the chain. And we've seen enormous changes driven by just, you know, a, one person or a very small group of passionate advocates that this should mm. be taken seriously. And again, it's it's a story that that we hear so, so, so frequently. Um, I think there are also a, a couple of other things that people can do. So so one thing, and it, it kind of comes off the back of this more bottom-up bottom approach, is to create a space where anyone who's interested can come along and talk about their own experience of menopause. And that doesn't necessarily have to be someone who is going through it or even someone who will ever go through it in the case mm. of cis men, for example. And so this is building off the idea of um, the wonderful menopause cafes as developed by Rachel Weiss. And they've been running now, gosh, I want to say 10, 15 years. And they are absolutely remarkable. And, and that's something that can be done with a little bit of effort, absolutely, and that's more third shift and it's more emotional labour, but we do see that these can take off really quickly at work. And now, of course, because many of us are so so used to using platforms like the one we're on now, mm. it can be something that you can do online or it could be the equivalent of, of an intranet page where people, people can talk to each other using software like Yammer. So you can yeah. be anonymous if, if you don't feel comfortable enough to um, disclose who you are. But in terms of advice, there are two key resources that I would direct people to. And one of them is MIPO, which is M-I-P-O. Mm -hmm. And it's been developed by our very good friends, Kat Riak and Gavin Jack and their colleagues and collaborators. And MIPO stands for Menopause Information Pack for Organisations. It's a website. <laughs> yeah, it's free to download, free to look at based okay. on their enormous expertise in this area. The other very good and best-in-class provider, we would argue, is the organisation that I, I name-checked earlier, um, Hempick Menopause in the Workplace. Yep. So I, I would go there and get involved in that conversation. And they've got quite a lot of resources that you can access for free. Or if, organize, if you can persuade your organisation to really get on board, 
you could also register for what's called the menopause friendly accreditation and that that's the kind of sister organization to menopause in the workplace okay and this is where organizations pay i have to say not very much money and i'm not on commission not very much money to sign up and actually get personalized support to get the organization rolling on the way to developing menopause friendly policies practices cultures and so on and so on okay. and then if you go all the way through to the end of the process you can then submit an application to be accredited as a menopause friendly employer and we've numbers and numbers and numbers of organizations um who've already gone through this there's something like 500 employers on the books at the moment mm -hmm. and the organizations who have been accredited tell us that this has been so beneficial not just for the staff that are already in the organization but it's also such a positive signal to anyone who might think of applying for a mm. job there to see, oh, okay, so they do value equality, diversity, and, and inclusivity. Mm. So again, various ways and means, but if, if there's no money to spend, and I do understand that frequently that's the case, unfortunately, then, then MEPO would be a first stop, I think. Okay. Vanessa? Um, yeah, just to add a couple of other resources as well. So um, in workplaces where there's trade unions, the trade unions are often really well placed to provide support in terms of uh, reps who are on the ground, who perhaps yeah. even know the individual already and who can be a, a kind of linchpin between that individual and management and, and provide support there. But most unions also have excellent information um, on their web pages or have a have a kind of resource document for uh, menopause in the workplace and that applies to both individual trade unions and the TUC as a as an umbrella organization the TUC has some really excellent resources online we know because we worked with them for our study that is mentioned in the book uh, repeatedly and um, so TUC education has, has got um, excellent resources available and then if you're if you want to look at it more from the perspective of uh, an employer or a manager as opposed to an individual employee, then the Chartered Institute for Personnel Development also has really good resources. They've got a whole kind of area for menopause with documents that, that provide, um, I think there's still a document that has example policies from different organisations. Oh, wow. If you wanted to uh, develop something like that in your workplace uh, as an employer, so that there are kind of a whole host of resources and we've just mentioned a handful now, but I think there's there's many more out there as well, but but they're good places to start. That's really, really brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, what we'll do, I'll, I'll bring out all the links for them and we can put them in the show notes um, so they're easy for people to get to. And also I think probably just sharing these resources in your organisation is a really good way of getting the conversation going and just making people realise that it is a point for discussion and there are resources available to get you started was there anything Abs else you wanted to add or absolutely I, I just to say you know there's no point in reinventing the wheel each time an organization does yeah. this there is lots out there it's pretty easy now to take it's not quite taking it off the shelf but it, there is lots of resources available and but what's important then is to use those in a way that makes sense for that organization because each organizational culture each each kind of shape and and um, format in which an organization is, is built up is different and making sure that yeah. that's reflected in how you provide support that makes sense and is suitable to your employees is really important yeah yeah fully fully agree and I think just just a final comment from me 
we have seen these enormous strides in menopause awareness and menopause support, particularly in the UK. It is starting to spread across the world now, which again is fantastic to see, um, especially when seven, eight years ago, menopause just wasn't a thing in the workplace. It wasn't recognised as a thing and there were almost no supportive interventions that we could track down. That's Things no are very time different at all, now. is it? I know, but it just shows how much can be achieved yeah, actually, true. Yeah. by by all these amazing menopause warriors, as as we call them, in, in various different workplaces across the UK. The conversation now is actually starting to widen, um, which I'm delighted about, and I know Vanessa is too, because a lot of what we talk about in the context of menopause is also very helpful and very supportive for women who have gynecological health conditions. Right. So I'm talking here, for example, about things like endometriosis, dysmenorrhea, PCOS. There's, there's a whole range of um, different, often chronic mm. gynecological health conditions, many of which don't have a cure, many of which we don't even know why they're caused. And there's all sorts of very problematic medical discourse, which explains why these things haven't received the attention that they deserve. But the conversation is now starting about, well, if we know all of these things about menopause and we've shown that a lot of these things do make a genuine difference mm. um, to people who are struggling at work, then let's bring these other experiences into the conversation because these gynecological health conditions are much more common than I think people realise. Mm. And also, it could simply be that you have bad periods. I mean, dysmenorrhea or PCOS or endometriosis are not bad periods. They're much more serious than that. You know, a lot of us have struggled with our periods over the years. And if you have a menopause friendly workplace, you can then expand that to become a menstruation friendly yeah. workplace. And again, then you're capturing a whole other community of people and just normalizing what what still I think are enormous taboos yeah. at work. Menopause is gaining yeah. some traction, but periods and gynecological health issues, we're still at the beginning of that that particular conversation absolutely thank you so much both um that's amazing work um and it really really feels like it's a space where there's lots lots and lots of room to make change like on a small level and on a research level um so that's brilliant thank you menopause transitions in the workplace is edited by vanessa beck and joe brewis and is published by bristol university press you can find more information on our website, which is bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. Thank you, Joe and Vanessa. Thank you. Thanks, Jessica.